Good evening to you all and uh, welcome uh, to this very special occasion because this occasion is one of our series of prestigious lectures in the LSE Space for Thought lecture series to mark the opening of the new academic building. And it's a great pleasure to also tell you that the next two lectures in the series will be given one on the 16th of June by Danny Roderick called Capitalism 3.0. And on the 27th of July, Amartya Sen, no less, as well, on the idea of justice. So three spectacular uh, um, public lectures. Paul will sign books after the event, which requires that we leave this lecture hall at the end before you all get up. So I'll ask you, I'll remind you at the very end, that we'll go outside before you. The only reason then is he can be seated in place in case you want to buy a signed copy of his most recent book and his last book. So let me then bring us on to this evening's lecture course by Professor Paul Collier, who will speak to the title, War, Wars, Guns and Votes, Democracy in Dangerous Places, the same title as his new book, published just this year in, 2000, um, in March 2009. He will explore the intersection of violence and poverty in the countries which are the home to the bottom billion people in the world economy, and ask why the democratic process in these countries so often fails. Professor Collier is Professor of Economics at Oxford University and co-director of the International Growth Centre here at the LSE. He's, of course, very well known as the author of the book The Bottom Billion, which won the 2008 Lionel Gelber Prize for the world's best book on international affairs, no less. He has lectured widely on the subjects of economics and international relations. In previous years, he served as senior advisor to Tony Blair's Commission on Africa, he also completed the first ever external review of the IMF operations for the board of the IMF. In 1998 to 2003, he was director of the development research group at the World Bank, I understood, invited there by Joe Stiglitz. His research focuses on a wide range of macroeconomic, microeconomic, and political economy issues, all concerned about or with Africa. In particular, he works on the causes and consequences of civil war, the effects of aid, the problems of democracy in low-income and uh, densely resource-rich countries. He'll speak this evening for 50 minutes, then there'll be an opportunity for you all to engage with him, of course. So it just remains for me to ask you to give him a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. This, this sort of introduction that always terrifies me witless. You know? um, the, um, so let's get straight in. The, the bottom billion, which I hope you've read, um, uh, the bottom billion was, was about poverty. It was trying to um, get people to, to think of the poverty problem in the world differently. Um, to move on from this sort of global UN annual headcount of poverty uh, to, uh, to, to seeing that a, the core of the problem was, was that a bunch of countries, about 60 countries, had broadly stagnated over the, the previous 40 years uh, and as a result had diver diverged from the rest of mankind. So that a new gap had opened up between the these 60 or so countries with about a billion people and, and the, the, the majority of people living in developing countries, the four billion that are, that are not in the top billion but not in the bottom billion. 
Um, so that, that was the, the, uh, the, the focus of the bottom billion, um, poverty, rethinking poverty. Uh, wars, guns, and votes um, is not about poverty. It's about the same group of countries, but it's about power. Um, it's about the weaknesses or the lack of effective military power in a lot of these countries, leading to insecurity, and the abuse of political power. So it's that combination. Uh, it's about power. Um, I should say I'm particularly pleased to be, to be here giving this lecture because the inspiration for the book um, came at the dinner following the last lecture. Um, when I, I sat down next to my intimidatingly brilliant former student, Tim Besley, um, who's sort of intellectually massively surpassed my own uh, achievements, um, and we talked about the problems of the bottom billion, and we found ourselves disagreeing in a way that I'll come to in a little while, but it was a really illuminating intellectual disagreement, and that triggered a chain of thoughts which became wars, guns, and votes. So it's very appropriate that I should be back here. I hope the same happens at tonight's dinner. Right? <laughs> um, the, um, in one sense, it's, uh, it's, it's a rather bleak book um, because it starts with the, the proposition that, that we've, as an international community, we have been in a phase of denying reality. And so I, the, the, the first part of the book is a, is a sort of critique of that phase of denying reality. And then, then I turn to another sort of bleak part, which is facing reality. Now, denying reality, the, the, the critique of, of, of the international position over the last 15 years, and facing reality are both fairly bleak. Uh, and there's, there's, only, there's only one justification for that. Um, bleakness of itself is, is, is a negative. Um, these situations are already demoralized, and so bleakness just makes that worse. And the, the only justification for it is that the third part of the book, I turn to changing reality. So it's denying reality, facing reality, and changing reality. And the argument is that unless you face reality, you can't hope effectively to change reality. So the, the whole purpose of the book is, a, is, is trying to, to get realistic strategies for change. Um, let me give you a, a one-sentence summary of the book. Um, the, the, the statistical evidence, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sort of into statistical evidence, and the statistical, the statistical evidence on what is retained from a public lecture is very depressing for lecturers. <laughs> um, so, um, so let me get the one-sentence summary of the book, which you can then think, ah, that's what it's about, this book, right? Um, and the one-sentence summary which is in the book, I try and be helpful in the book, right? Um, is that the countries of the bottom billion are in this paradoxical situation of being too large to be nations and yet too small to be states. Now, that's an easy thing to remember 
the only problem is it's unintelligible, right? So I'm now going to try and explain in the rest of the lecture what that means. Um, and we'll start by going way back into history and looking at the emergence of the European state. Um, and, uh, and here, my, what I'm going to give you is, is not at all original. I'm basing what I say on a, a historian, Charles Tilly, um, who in turn has been turned into the most glorious mathematical economics um, by Tim Besley and Thorsten Person. It's in, the, I think, the latest or the forthcoming American Economic Review. And they've sort of set Charles Tilly to music, as it were, and I'm going to, to give you a, a simple <coughs> exposition. Um, and the, the argument is that the, the states that we now see in, in Europe emerged as the solutions to problems, the boundaries of those states uh, were endogenous. The, the, the boundaries are not um, intrinsic to some primeval ethnic slime that oozed out of the ground. The, the, the boundaries are solutions to problems. Uh, and the overarching problem uh, was security. Um, so you start, you go back in history and you have the little proto-states of medieval Europe. In fact, new research suggests that often these proto-states were really tiny, minuscule, you know, 10 by 10 square miles, that sort of thing. And uh, they would be ruled by somebody who probably called themselves a count, but was more accurately thought of as a thug. Um, and um, and you know, they, they exploited the, the people living in that little territory, um, and the people didn't run away because you were out of the frying pan into the fire. The next territory was also run by a thug. And the, the rival thugs had ambitions, not just to run their little bit of territory, but to, to beat up the neighbors. You know? So there was then an arms race, sort of arms races in Lilliput, as each thug tried to get the bigger army than the neighbor. Because uh, you could get a bigger army, then you could expand. And if you ended up with a smaller army, you got swallowed. Um, so that was a process. What did that produce? First of all, endogenously, uh, the, the, the better militarized states swallow up the, the smaller. And so you end up with states that are, that are able to provide internal security and external security. Um, so that's the, the first process. Um, the, the, the states you get solve the security problem. But that solution to the security problem actually solves two other problems kind of inadvertently. Um, one is that um, because it's all about rival external threats, um, it creates a sense of nationalism. I mean, my goodness, Europe suffered from that. But national, a sense of nationalism has a silver lining because it, it forges a, a common sense of identity. I mean, actually, European sense of nationhood is a pretty recent phenomenon. It's usually a 19th century urban middle class creation. And of course, how they justify it is they come up with some myth of primordial ethnic common roots, which is usually a load of bogus coswallop, right? But, it, but, it, but it, that myth of common identity was basically driven by external warfare, a sense of a common external enemy. So one thing that comes out of this 
these arms races, um, is, uh, is a sense of national identity. A, a good example would say, say be Germany, where Germany crunches down over the course of a few centuries from over 350 little states to one and builds a common sense of German nationalism. The other byproduct of this arms race and building of secure states is that inadvertently they build accountable states. And the reason is that who wins these arms races? The ones that can spend most on the military. What does that depend upon? Effective taxation. How do you build effective taxation? Well, you build institutions that tax, but you also find that taxation provokes opposition, and it's a good way to get some tax compliance is to concede a degree of accountability. So that was the sort of process that produced effective states in Europe. It was a ghastly process in my view, but it has produced effective states. Um, the countries of the bottom billion, of course, have emerged through a totally different process. Um, a uh, a sudden decolonization which split them up typically into very small territories. Not always. I mean, you, you, you get the emergence of India, which isn't part of the bottom billion at all. Huge territory. Um, uh, but it, certainly in Africa, the, the colonial um, groupings um, split, split, and split again. So there were, there were typically there was about six or seven colonial groupings in Africa, and they become 54 countries, on average very small. Um, these little countries, even though they're small, are too large to be nations because there is no process that builds a common sense of identity. There's no equivalent to the external warfare that in Europe built national identity. Um, without that sense of national identity, that common identity, what you're left with is very strong sub-national identities and weak sense of national identity. Strong sub-national identities make it very much harder to cooperate. And cooperation is needed to supply public goods. There's a, there's a wealth of economic evidence now, both micro and macro, to show that where subnational identities predominate, is very, what, what suffers is the provision of public goods. So, too, too large to be nations. Um, there's a few examples where that process is successfully overcome. The, the outstanding example in Africa is Tanzania, where President Nyerere uh, builds a sense of nationhood. And he adopts a range of strategies to do so, which are pretty effective. Sometimes they're mocked. He builds a new capital. He hasn't got the money to pull that off. But it was actually, I think, a, the right sort of symbolism. Put a capital in the center of the country. He, he has a common language. He tears up the education system and makes it a national education system. There's some brilliant work, which is unfortunately not my own, it's by Ted Miguel, um, which compares communities in Tanzania and Kenya, 
the, ex exactly the same sorts of structures of communities, just sliced through with a border, an artificial <coughs> border. And on the Tanzanian side, it makes no difference whether you look at localities which have a lot of ethnic diversity or which are ethnically homogeneous. Both are equally good at supplying public goods. And across the border in Kenya, where instead of having Nyerere build a common sense of nationality, you've had 40 years of ethnic politics, which we see most recently, like this time last year, it all blew up. Right? But it's 40 years of ethnic politics. And what Miguel finds is that on the Kenyan side of the border, the areas which are ethnically homogeneous are fine. They produce public goods just as well as in Tanzania. But the areas which are ethnically diverse, they can't produce public goods. Supply of public goods collapses. And so that failure to build a common sense of nationhood has exacted the price of an inability to supply public goods adequately. So too large to be nations, and yet too small to be states. These countries are typically really small. We, we, we misjudge how small they are because we usually measure country size in terms of population. But where size matters is for the provision of public goods, and public goods are economic activities. And so the right metric for public goods is the size not of the population, but the size of the economy. And these countries are tiny economies. Luxembourg will be big relative to the typical African country of the bottom billion. And so they can't reap the scale economies which are intrinsic to public goods. And so twice over, they're hit on the provision of public goods. Can't cooperate, and they can't meet scale economies. And so across a very wide range of public goods, supply is inadequate. Where that really matters is in two key public goods. And that's what the rest of this lecture is going to focus on. And the two key public goods are security and accountability. So let me start with security. Security is provided by defense. If you, if you take economics course on public goods 101, or the chapter on public goods, the very classic example of what is a public good will be defense. That's what economists always turn to as the absolutely standard public good. Now, defense provides um, against two sorts of insecurity, external and internal. For the emergence of the European economies, I've talked about external threat. Um, for the typical countries of the bottom billion, um, they've not faced much in the way of external threat at all. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is that um, during the Cold War, um, it was so dangerous to have international warfare that a sort of blanket was put on international conflict. Kind of nobody was allowed to invade anybody else. Um, and the other reason was that um, African governments saw that this was, you know, international warfare would be crazy. Uh, and so the Organization of African Unity just had this policy of recognize everybody's borders. Um, and that, now, um, I said the inspiration from, from, for this lecture came from a, a disagreement with, 
with Tim Besley over dinner following the last lecture, and the nature of the disagreement was that I was saying, so I was sketching this, and I said, um, uh, thank goodness that uh, Africa has not had international war. And Tim said, no, no, actually, that there is no other way to get effective states than that route which has been followed in the past. And, and this is not just a wild idea of Tim. This is, the, the, in, in America, the, the doyen of his generation on uh, the politics of African economies, a guy called Jeffrey Herbst, who was a professor at Princeton. And that was, that was basically Herbst's thesis, that what Africa needed was this sort of international rivalry, the sort of process that had crunched Germany down from 350 states to one. There were too many states in Africa, in Herbst's view, a view I also share, but that Herbst felt the way to crunch, there was only one realistic way to crunch the number of states down, and that was military rivalry. And Tim agreed with that. So you've got kind of the top American political scientist, the top British development economist, actually on the same page on this. I, I'm not on that page. I think the, the, the cost of that happening is off the map worse than the problem. Um, so I, I don't, don't agree with them. But sometimes I'm accused of being, um, you know, kind of my ideas are too extreme. Not very often, actually, I'm accused of that, but sometimes. Um, I just want to point out that in, in this domain, there's, there's, there's a lot out that's much wilder than me. Um, so in, in external insecurity was not the problem for the bottom billion. But internal insecurity was the problem. They were so small, so unable to cooperate to provide public goods, that the level of security they could provide was inadequate for internal peace. Um, why was uh, there such a high degree of internal insecurity? Um, rebellion was very easy. Um, as you may have know, I've, I've kind of studied, tried to study the, what, what makes countries prone for, 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 for civil war and large-scale political violence. And it, it's a sort of, the, the economic aspects are um, low income, low growth, dependence upon primary commodities, and small economic size. All of those are structural features of the bottom billion, unfortunately. When I first came up with those ideas, um, I was quite properly challenged, you know, were my econometrics um, foolproof? And they weren't. Um, but a lot of work has come into subsequently to kind of vindicate those, those propositions. Um, a bit of it my own, um, but then uh, the, uh, the work on the importance of uh, growth for, 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 for security was done by Ted Miguel and some other colleagues. Very recently, Tim Besley um, has done, revisited the issue of uh, the causes of insecurity and come up with, I think, a really convincing econometric demonstration that low income and primary commodities increase the risks of conflict. So what started as a, what I think was a reasonable interpretation of the evidence has gradually become, I think, a pretty 
um, econometrically robust position. Um, if rebellion's so easy, um, there's also a dilemma of how to secure the state by, because what will be the answer? Well, the answer will be build a big military, as, at least as big as you can afford, and unfortunately, that is out of the frying pan into the fire. Because uh, there are two challenges to internal security uh, in the typical country of the bottom billion. One is from rebellion, and the other is from coup d'etat. And the, the very group that can defend you from rebellion, your army, is actually the group that's going to perpetrate the coup d'etat. And so you need a strong military to defend you from rebellion, but a weak military to avoid a coup d'etat. Um, if you think that's a fantasy, um, let me give you the example of Zaire. Because Mobutu Zaire really exemplified this problem. Mobutu was terrified of losing power, but not to rebellion. What he was terrified about was losing power to a coup. And so he did a very effective job of defending himself from a coup. The way you defend yourself from a coup is you totally emasculate your army. And he did a brilliant job of that. So brilliant that when a very small group of uh, invaders came over from Rwanda in support of a tiny little rebel group, I mean, look at a map. Look at the size of Rwanda and the size of Zaire. Right? And this group from Rwanda marched <coughs> right across Zaire with no effective military opposition whatsoever. Okay. So Mobutu finally fell to rebellion, having safeguarded himself against a coup. Um, the, so the dilemma between um, the frying pan and the fire means that there's no effective way to provide internal security. Uh, the consequences of high level of internal insecurity are devastating for the economy. Uh, insecurity is development in reverse. When you have these conflicts, they tear up the economy. Even when you don't have conflict, <coughs> if you've got a high risk of conflict, it's a major deterrent to private investment, obviously. Uh, and these conflicts spill over to the whole neighborhood, not in terms of the conflict itself, but the costs to the neighborhood. I estimate that approximately half the costs of the typical conflict accrue to the neighborhood. <coughs> so much for the uh, inadequate provision of security in the bottom billion. Let me turn to the inadequate provision of accountability. Now, as I said, security is the sort of textbook 101 public good. Accountability isn't. Um, and yet, it is a sort of public good. In fact, I'm going to argue later it's a vital public good. But to argue that it's a vital public good for the bottom billion, um, I've got to overcome one glaringly obvious counter, which is China. China is not big on accountability, right? frankly. Um, and yet it's certainly developed, right? Uh, so how can accountability be something that's really important for the bottom billion, right? I think the answer is that China really is um, a, a, a false uh, uh, goal, a false model for the typical country of the bottom billion. 
Um, China has um, two features <laughs> which, make, which make autocracy much more, uh, basically to make autocracy work in China when, they, when autocracy wouldn't work in the bottom billion. Um, Tim Besley has this great paper uh, called Making Autocracy Work. Um, and what part of the point of that paper is you've got a huge dispersion in the performance of autocracy. You've got the, the very successful, economically successful autocracies like China, but you've also got the most disastrous uh, development stories in the world are autocracies. Um, China is very big relative to the bottom billion, and yet it's very cohesive relative to the bottom billion. It has a strong sense of national identity. And so there isn't a massive divergence between the elite and ordinary people in terms of goals. Both of them actually want a strong China. Whereas in the socially fragmented societies of the bottom billion, you can get a yawning gulf between the interests of an elite and the interests of ordinary people. And so if that elite has autocratic power, it pursues its own interests rather than the interests of the country. And that we've seen again and again. So, so democracy, accountability is not necessary for China, but it is necessary for the small and fragmented societies of the bottom billion. Accountability is a public good, but it's a special sort of public good. It requires a combination of the government providing institutions of accountability and citizens having the freedom to make those institutions work, and finally, citizens being provoked to demand accountability. Uh, and the provocation, because it's, it's, it's that citizen scrutiny which is the public good, basically, that um, why should I bother to scrutinize? I'll let you scrutinize. Um, and the provocation, of course, in Europe was taxation. Effectively, it was no representation without taxation. Um, and in the typical country of the bottom billion, that hasn't happened. Taxation's been very low, partly because of aid, partly because of big resource rents. And so there hasn't been that, um, that public good uh, of accountability. The institutions which, we've tried to, which we as the international community have tried to promote accountability, there's been one institution that over the last 15 years we've relied upon, and that is elections. And that wasn't foolish. Elections are, of course, the technology by which citizens hold government to account. Um, in my latest work, I can show elections work to hold government to account in terms of forcing the government to improve economic policies. Um, so I, I was surprised and very encouraged by that. But here's the killer in that result. Elections do discipline governments to improve economic policies, but only if the elections are properly conducted. Where the elections are badly conducted, there is at best no effect on economic policy. Quite a few. It, it's more likely that policy deteriorates as a result of misconducted elections rather than that it improves. So they work conditional upon the conduct of the elections. 
So what do we know about crooked elections? Um, I've just written a paper called, where, the, where the working title is How to Win an Election Without Really Trying. Um, and um, uh, the first thing we show is that um, cheating in elections, and there, there are three techniques, what do we mean by crooked, crookedness? We mean um, bribing voters, we mean intimidating voters, and we mean ballot fraud. Those are the big three methods of illicit, the big, the big three illicit tactics. Um, <coughs> and of course, they all, they all advantage incumbents. Incumbents have more money, so they can do the bribery. Uh, incumbents, in the end, have resort to uh, more forces of, military forces of intimidation, so they can do the intimidation. And the incumbent has more control over the uh, local government authorities, and so it's in a better position for ballot fraud. Um, do these tactics work? Well, we've, we've got data sets which distinguish between elections that are properly conducted, which is most elections, <coughs> and elections which um, uh, are not properly conducted. Um, by God, uh, crooked elections work. The, the, the metric we used, I, tr I tried to put myself in the position of, a, of an incumbent who had to face an election. And I thought, what would an incumbent really worry about? Um, first and foremost, how long can I stay in office? Um, and resorting to these illicit tactics triples your expected duration in office. So, wow, these things are desirable. Right? What's more, they get you off the hook of having to deliver good economic policies. If you're confined to, um, to honest election tactics, the difference between getting the economy to perform well and screwing the economy up, that difference is really big. Good economic performance adds about 60% to your expected duration in office. But if you can resort to illicit tactics, the difference between good and bad economic performance is trivial in terms of duration in office. You've solved your duration problem already. And so, of course, there's a big temptation then because good economic policies come at an opportunity cost for a crooked incumbent. They might be good for you, but they're bad for me. Huh? Crooked, bad economic policies actually means resort to patronage systems and embezzlement rather than the policies which build the national economy. So they're effective, they displace good economic performance, and unfortunately, in some societies, they're easy, these tactics. I've looked to see what are the structural conditions in which illicit tactics emerge. Um, and uh, there are kind of three of them. One is small societies are much more vulnerable than large. Small is not beautiful. Small is, is, is uh, insecure and unaccountable. I think one reason for that is that small societies, power is very easily personalized. The chains of power are personal chains. Whereas in a big society, pretty rapidly, you've got to institutionalize power. Um, it's no surprise to me that the manifestly the most misgoverned uh, economy in uh, in Europe is Iceland, which is also about the smallest. Right? Personalized power gone very badly wrong. Um, so small, 
poor, dependent upon natural resources. They're the big three that drive um, crooked elections. And they're all, unfortunately, once again, the structural features of the bottom billion. So, a security problem structurally there, an accountability problem structurally there. These are distinct problems, unfortunately. What I'd like to be able to tell you that I can't is that if you fix the accountability problem, the security problem goes away. If you get accountable government, you don't need to worry about security. Unfortunately, as far as I can see, that just isn't true. It's true above a threshold level of per capita income, about $2,700 per capita. Above that level of income, democracy makes a society safer. But unfortunately, below that threshold, it makes it more dangerous. Now, that's not an argument for saying don't democratize, but it is an argument for saying if you democratize, you've still got a security problem. And so accountability and security are both distinct problems. They are public goods which are going to be systematically undersupplied in the typical society of the bottom billion. So, we've challenged the denial of reality, we've faced reality, and now it's time to change reality. So let's turn to a few solutions. Um, I suppose this is the time to say, we've just run out of time, so I'll sign books. Um, um, but let me... Uh, so, first off, um, regional solutions, solutions within, within the region. Um, let's, let's look at security. Um, there's very good reason for countries to try and generate regional solutions to uh, insecurity, and that reason is there's very big spillovers to the neighborhood uh, from conflict. So it makes a lot of sense to try and get together to provide a secure neighborhood. Um, there's a problem. Um, and the problem is that neighbors, although they have legitimate interests in trying to get a secure neighborhood, also have illegitimate interests. And um, it's that confusion of the legitimate and the illegitimate interest which um, arises when neighbors try and secure uh, the peace. And the, the, the classic recent example of that um, is the attempt by Ethiopia uh, to provide uh, security in Somalia. Uh, and that was treated with immense suspicion in Somalia because Ethiopia was seen as having its own agenda. And so I think that is the, the dilemma for the regional supply is that the only countries which really have an interest in supplying security are the countries where the interest in supply actually should debar them from, from doing it. Uh, and so the regional solution, though attractive, is much harder than it looks. <coughs> so much for security, how about accountability? Well, Africa has made progress there. There's the African peer review mechanism, which is an attempt at um, regional uh, effort at accountability. Uh, and I, all strengths to it. Right? Um, but the, to date, the regional effort 
to impose accountability on governments has not been impressive. Just look at Zimbabwe. Um, I would describe the, the presidents of the bottom billion as, as sovereignty retentive, if you like. Um, and uh, they're just not sharing sovereignty with each other. Um, take the following thought experiment. Um, let's compare the ability to share sovereignty in the, historically in the, in the now developed states. The, the, the most spectacular example of shared sovereignty was what we now call the United States of America. Um, the United States of America in English used to be a plural noun because the states were the individual states. Um, and through a painful process, they learned to share power, to share sovereignty. So let's take California, the biggest economy in America. Let's take the biggest state in Europe, because Europe followed suit after the Second World War and shared power. So we take California, we'll take Germany, we'll take Australia, which used to be a set of independent countries which then federated. So we'll take the biggest state in Australia, Victoria, I think. Um, and we'll take the biggest state in India. Right? And we'll compare them with, let's take, let's take Burundi, little country in Africa. Right? Now, only one of those five entities has an independent exchange rate. Only one of them has an independent trade policy. Only one of them has an independent fiscal policy. Only one of them refuses to allow appeals from its courts to co higher courts. Yeah. In fact, only one of them has an independent security policy. And that is, of course, Burundi. And yet Burundi is about at least 100 times smaller than the economies of any of the other groups that I'm comparing it with. And so Burundi needs, for the provision of essential public goods, for those public goods, it needs to share sovereignty much more than the other entities. California doesn't need to share sovereignty anything like as much as Burundi, nor does Germany, etc. And yet, they've learned to share sovereignty. Burundi clings to sovereignty. But it's not, of course, Burundi that's clinging to sovereignty, because within Burundi, and countries like Burundi, power is massively centralized in the person of the president. And so it's not countries which are sovereignty retentive, it's presidents. What we have in the bottom billion is not national sovereignty, it's presidential sovereignty. So, um, if regional supply won't work, um, we are left with international supply. Um, and uh, I used to be much more hesitant about this than I am now. Um, eventually, it struck me the, the citizens of the bottom billion are, are part, of the, part of the global community. Um, there's no justification for putting up a keep out sign. Um, 
<laughs> and Becky used to have this slogan, African solutions for African problems, which actually meant South African solutions for African problems and was not, was not greatly welcomed elsewhere in Africa. Um, but, but why should there be African solutions for African problems? Why? They're people like us. They need the international supply of public goods much more than we need the international supply. That's the asymmetry. We've got, we're living in political entities which can largely solve the problem of supplying these public goods. And the citizens of the bottom billion don't live in political entities that can solve that supply. And so they need international supply. Uh, is that inevitably colonialism mark II? Uh, I don't think so. Um, and I would say that the political transformation in America has opened up big new opportunities. Um, in a nutshell, it is impossible to picture President Obama in a pith helmet. Um, he is no way that he can be dressed up as a neo-colonial threat to Africa. He is African. Africans are proud of Obama. They're not just fascinated like the rest of us, they're proud, and quite rightly so. So what would the international supply mean? Um, security. Let me just have one quick comment there. Um, Post-conflict peacekeeping, uh, I've done a quantitative study to see, is it effective? And the answer is yes. Post-conflict environments are really risky. There's a 40% risk of reversion to conflict within a decade. There are no political solutions I can find post-conflict that bring risks down. We've over-relied on elections to try and bring risks down. They don't bring risks down in post-conflict situations. There's no safe period. It's not a matter of just getting over the first two years and then you can fly the troops out. Peacekeepers are needed for the whole decade. Um, possibly we can do over the horizon guarantees, as, as in Sierra Leone. Um, but peacekeeping is effective. It brings the risks down a lot. It's expensive. And so in my more recent work, just coming out with Copenhagen Consensus 2, um, I decided I'd try and do a cost-benefit analysis of peacekeeping to see whether it was cost-effective. So there's the cost of peacekeeping. There's the cost of conflict. Is the, is the reduced probability of conflict worth paying for with the peacekeeping? Um, Copenhagen Consensus is a terrifying ordeal for the researcher because you're stuck up against a, a panel of Nobel Prize winners who are, are then sort of scrutinizing your work. It's, it's like a viva, but in spades. You know, it's a sort of psychological nightmare that I thought I'd never subject myself to again, having survived my doctorate. Um, but fortunately, these guys looked at this, they said, yeah. And they, 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 in their conclusion, they write, peacekeeping is good value money. It's a good use of international resources. Right? Um, it's odd, if it is a good use of international resources, um, that we don't count it as a good use of international resources. We count aid as a good use of international resources for, for societies like the bottom billion, but we don't count peacekeeping. It seems to me either we shouldn't be doing peacekeeping or the money devoted to it should count as development assistance. So what I'd like to see is the, the, the UN target raised from 0.7% to probably about 
but peacekeeping expenditures then included in that envelope. It wouldn't squeeze anything out. You'd increase the, the, the bar by the amount that we spend on peacekeeping, but it will allow for rational decision-taking between when is it sensible to spend money on peacekeepers, when is it sensible to spend money on aid. At the moment, we have no framework in which that is a in which that decision is actually posed. So much for security. Let me turn to accountability as the final thing I'll talk about. Um, I've got, I'll just float two suggestions very quickly. Part of accountability is always to do with money. Uh, follow the money and you've got accountability to an extent. Of course, the accountability I'm talking about is not accountability of governments to the international community. I'm talking about the accountability of governments to their own citizens. But when we provide money without questions, sometimes we connive at that money being captured by the very people who are the problem. The, the problem is, and so the problem of, of, of capture is not that our money is wasted and that's an affront to us. It's not wasted, it's captured. It's empowering the very people who so often win against the brave people who are struggling for accountability. Um, people like John Githongo, I see that uh, Michaela Rong has just written this fabulous book on uh, John is, is here in the audience. Um, so my proposal there is that, um, very simple, it's that we have independent scrutiny, independent verification of when budget systems are sufficiently robust to warrant budget support. Countries which were certified as having um, robust budget systems, why would you give the country money other than in budget support? Somebody's trying to tell us something. Huh? Um, That's the first. Um, the, uh, and countries where um, the certification process concludes they're not fit for budget support, it's irresponsible to give them budget support. Once you had that certification system, there'd then be a real struggle to raise standards and get certified. So there'd be a huge capacity building effort to make budget systems sound. And at the moment, often they're not. So that's money. Accountability is always partly to do with money. But let me close with the wild idea um, in, in the book. Um, and this is, let's take us back to the heartland of the failure of democratic accountability is the um, illicit conduct in elections by the incumbent, typically. Right? Incumbents steal elections. And that triples their duration of office. And so how can we make accountability to citizen effective by discouraging illicit tactics in elections? And for that, it's no good saying, well, we'll give countries more aid if, uh, if they conduct clean elections. Aid is not sufficiently potent for me, the president, to, for, to, to reduce my expected duration in office by a factor of three in order to get my country more aid. Forget it. And what's more, I know that donors are always chicken so that in the end they'll give me the money anyway. So forget, forget aid, right? Um, the, um, 
And then I thought, what the, what the president's really scared about? Well, we know what presidents are really scared about. I've already told you. They're terrified of coup d'etat. In Africa alone, there have been now close to 90 successful coup d'etat. In the last year alone, there were four of them, successful coup d'etat. Terrible. Now, in two of those four, properly democratically elected governments were ousted by their own militaries. And do you know what happened from the international community? <coughs> Nothing happened. So we sat there on our hands whilst democratically elected governments were replaced by military leaders. And we shouldn't have done. The African Union condemned these coups. And so it won't invite them to the African Union, but believe it or not, not receiving an invitation to the meetings of the African Union is not a big enough deterrent to um, persuade people not to do coups. Um, so what can we do? We can put them down. We can put them down. Actually, these militaries, remember, are pretty feeble affairs. They're not really meant to fight. Um, and so it's way within the international community's military capacity to put these coups down. And I believe it would be very sensible for us to offer that to democratically elected governments. We could just say, any government that has properly conducted elections uh, will provide our undertaking of our best efforts to prevent a coup d'etat, to put down a coup d'etat. Now, I think once we'd said that, there would be no coup d'etat against democratic governments. Imagine your, you know, your Colonel X and General Y discussing whether to, you know, whether to do a coup, and somebody somewhere along the line, somebody's going to say, ah, it's too dangerous, you know. Um, and so, um, it's easy to deter coups with a bit of uh, international military uh, guarantee commitment. Um, so there's the carrot, but the real uh, neat feature of this proposal is that that fairly large carrot <coughs> inadvertently and unavoidably turns into a very large stick. Um, because suppose that you cheat on the election. Suppose you're President Kibaki in late 2007 and it doesn't, things don't look too good. You might pull it off. You're not sure, the polls are very close, but let's make sure. Okay? Now the problem about let's make sure is that then when the international community scrutinizes, they're going to say there's no way this is a free and fair election. And that's what the international community did after, uh, after the Kenyan election. They said, forget it, right? Nothing happened. But under this proposal, what would happen? Well, what would happen is, remember, we've, we've kind of guaranteed this government against a coup. Do we want to keep that guarantee in place? Suppose the army comes in and says, you cheated, you're out. Do we, do we want us to be committed to throwing the army out and restoring this crooked president of power? Obviously not. And so what do we have to do? We have to publicly say, and what's more, sorry, Mr. President, but not only did you cheat in the election, but that guarantee about coups, remember, it's off. Now, taking the guarantee off is not the same as never having had it. Inadvertently, unavoidably, it's an invitation. And now play this out. Because what happens is not a lot of coups. 
what happens is that presidents say, my God, I daren't steal the election. Because if I steal the election, there'll be a coup. And let me close with an example which I think illustrates that this is not a fantasy. And that example is Senegal uh, in the year 2000. Um, there had been the president for life. Um, and president for life, you've got to hold elections because everybody's holding elections. So you hold an election. And your power is in the rural areas. You've got so much power in the rural areas. You've got genuine support in the rural areas, but actually you can have as many votes as you like in the rural areas. You know? The opposition has the urban areas. When the votes started to come in the, in the election, the opposition started to get ahead. That was simply because the urban areas declared results first. And then a very peculiar thing happened. The president, for life, <coughs> before the counting was over, announced, I accept defeat. Before the rural votes were counted, what on earth was going on? Right? If he just let those rural votes be counted perfectly fairly, he might have won. Or he could have delivered as many as he wanted. What had happened was that just a few, just a few months previously, in Côte d'Ivoire, there had been a coup d'etat. And unusually, the French had decided not to put that coup d'etat down. And that was a signal across Francophone Africa that French policy had changed. Coups were now feasible. And so the Senegalese army went to the president for life and said, if you steal this election, we're going to do a coup. And now put yourself in the really unfortunate position of the president for life. These urban votes have come in. You're behind. If you just let the rural votes be counted perfectly fairly, you might win. The problem is, you're in a dilemma. You've built a system in which there's no way that you can win so convincingly that the army will say, oh, that was fair. If you win having been way behind, there's a risk that the army will say, you cheated, we told you what would happen, hello. And so, the president for life realized he got a choice between stepping down honorably and risking being pushed out by a coup. He chose to step down honorably because the consequences of a coup he rightly judged to be too terrifying. That's an illustration of the power of the threat of a coup d'etat and hence the potential value of an undertaking which to my mind is entirely leg legitimate which says democratic governments will be protected to the best of our ability from coup d'etat. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for, um, you know, a, a fantastic lecture, a beautifully eloquent lecture. It's very rare, I think, to hear someone speech with such uh, elegance without many prepared notes. And also for a controversial lecture. The lecture is not without controversial arguments. And so now is your opportunity to both praise and criticize. We've got half an hour, so there's plenty of time. I'll take questions in clusters of three. And if you can keep your questions nice and succinct, 
then we'll get lots of you in. We have roaming mics somewhere. Okay, let's, since, you, since you're up there, is there a person whose hand up is near you? Yes, the gentleman over there. Hi, good evening. Enjoyed your speech and uh, your theories uh, seem to be practical in some ways. Uh, um, my question, Gary Hayes is the name. Are the influence of the World Bank, IMF, and other factors such as commodities which are worth stealing, how much does that influence what's going on in these small countries and larger countries, like if you've got a brother like Jeb Bush? Thank you. Okay, can I have the mic? Thank you very much, Professor Collier, for your address. Um, I'm a student at LSE in Destin. Um, my question is, in your 2004 paper, Conflict and Development, uh, you said that the benefits of democracy only kick in at a per capita income of $700, uh, but within five years that figure's gone up to 2700 so I was just wondering what's happened to make democracy more expensive since then. <laughs> great, very great question. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, um, well, one, I thought it was a really good lecture and I really enjoyed it, but I have a couple of problems about it. And one is that we've had recently a democratically elected uh, government um, in Palestine, Hamas, and the response of the United States, the European Union, and anybody else with uh, democratic credentials was quickly to de you know, declare a boycott, declare a siege, and work constantly for its overthrow. Mm. Um, so how, how much can the larger powers be depend dependent upon to defend democracy? And the second point um, was... Um, was, of course, uh, George Bush and the stolen election, um, that uh, the stealing of elections is not unique to the no. bottom billion, and uh, certain sorts of elections uh, can be stolen elsewhere. We're going to take questions in clusters of three, so we'll come, come back. We'll keep the mic here for the first to the next cluster, but over to you, Paul. Yeah. Um, let me start with the, uh, the simple one about Mayor Culpa. Um, uh, the uh, income level at which democracy sort of the threshold um, uh, research is kind of like that you, uh, you either wait um, until you've got absolutely everything bolted down um, or you, or you or your, your work evolves um, the um, uh, the 2700 one I, I published it in the uh, Journal of the European Economic Association last year, um, and I think that I, w I wouldn't say that's um, robust, but it's the, it's the um, I think it's the be it's the it's the best estimate yet. I, I should say that I, when I trawl the literature on this, there's there's amazingly little quantitative work, amazingly little. So there needs to be a lot more before we can be very confident. Um, but that's the uh, that's that's good. Um, of course, the, a lot of the countries of the bottom billion are, are way below that level, way below that level. So you know, I'd, I'd need to be really quite badly out before um, before we would need not to worry. Um, Hamas and Bush. I mean, let me take them in opposite order. First, yes, of course, there are stolen elections in uh, in, in developed countries. I don't want to in any way imply that this is a... And, and there are clean elections in developing countries. Ghana's just had one recently. Mm -hmm. 
we know it was clean in Ghana because the government lost by a whisker. Um, that is the ultimate test of a clean election, right? Um, um, uh, so it's not a them versus us thing. It's that uh, the structural features which make it likely that elections, that you get these illicit tactics, uh, mean that the, the bottom billion are much more prone to them, right? Um, and wherever they happen, we should condemn them and do something about it, right? Um, the, uh, I would say that the independence of the Electoral Commission in Ghana puts the Electoral Commission in America to shame. Right? Um, the, now, your larger point about Hamas um, is a very important one, but let me turn it back on you. That, yes, the record of the international community on its military involvement is a very ambiguous record. At the moment, that's and that's because it's not rule-guided. It's entirely on discretion, which opens the door to a lot of opportunism. America's just established a military force for Africa called AFRICOM. And the remit of that force is at the moment really pretty vague. I think it's much safer to have the remits of these forces very clearly specified. They will go in to defend democratic governments, and otherwise they won't. Right? So the rules restrain the international powers as well as assist the structurally prone to illicit cheating. So I, I very much agree with what you're saying, but I think rules can actually reduce that problem rather than make us more at, their, at the mercy of uh, the, 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 the discretion in international intervention. Um, the, uh, the final question was um, from, from Gary was more, um, uh, was more open-ended. It was, it was about um, the influence on small countries from external influence. World Bank, IMF, um, natural resource companies, as, as, as all as powerful influences. Um, I th and that's right. I mean, the, the, um, but it's not the only thing that's happening. That the, it's not just, I mean, that way emphasizes kind of the victimhood of uh, the governments of the bottom billion at the mercy of international forces. And I think what that underplays is the fact that the governments of the bottom billion, the real victims are not the governments, it's the citizens of the bottom billion who are the, very often the victims of their own unaccountable governments. And so we need, the, there's two distinct problems. We need to restrain illegitimate international influence. For example, with the Ill illegitimate influence of natural resource companies, um, I'm at the moment trying to um, implement one of the ideas I floated in the bottom billion, which is a, an, a charter, an international charter for the better management of natural resources. Uh, if you go on, there's, there's a website which I'm building with Mike Spence, Tony Venables, used to be a professor at LSE. You can go on that website, it's called naturalresourcecharter.org, 
and it's pitched first and foremost for civil societies in the resource-rich countries themselves, but also for civil society here, and it's trying to impose some restraints on illegitimate behavior. Um, we're launching that in the middle of the May uh, in, in Dakar at the annual meetings of the African Development Bank, jointly with the African Development Bank. So I'm well aware that there are these illegitimate external pressures. We're trying to do something about it. But there's also these struggles within the bottom billion between the, the unaccountable governments and the victim citizen. Thanks. Thank you. Yes. Let's keep them short. <coughs> Yeah, just, just your point about guaranteeing um, elected governments against coup d'etat. Um, two, two brief points um, about that. Um, for example, the international community is very unlikely to fall for that. Um, Saddam Hussein, after all, came to power through a coup d'etat. He was removed. Uh, his army was proved feeble in the face of, a, of Western armies. Um, but, no, but look at what the situation we're in now. We're totally and utterly uh, bogged down. And it doesn't address the issue of Mugabe, how you get rid of existing dictators. I think they're very sophisticated now in terms of making sure that the whole establishment, the whole elite, has a vested interest financially in their survival. Thank you. Yes, gentleman at the back, and then we'll come to the cluster here. Yes, up there. Uh, thank you, Professor Collier. Um, just say, again, two quick points, uh, one quite similar to that. I was wondering, with your idea about coup d'etats, if, as you say, uh, African leaders are so adept at, uh, at um, weakening their militaries in order to stop coup d'etats, doesn't that create a slight problem for your idea? Um, and secondly, I wanted to ask your opinion of the African Union summit in Addis Ababa earlier this year, in which um, Colonel Gaddafi seemed to bring back the idea of Pan-Africanism and the United States of Africa, which I was quite surprised to see seemed to be endorsed by most of the African leaders and the, uh, most of the leaders across the continent, and what implications that might have. Mm, thank you. Yes, lady here. Um. Okay, um, I had two points really which were slightly more technical. One about mechanism. I mean, we obviously have the UN that exists already, which supposedly passes motions and carries out action. So how actually, who, who is going to decide whether elections are free and fair, which countries are on it? Is mm. it going back to the kind of League of Democracy idea that's been mm. floated around? Mm. Um, and the second question is about resources in um, economic climate as it is. European countries are struggling to reach the 0.7%. How are you going to convince them to reach the 0.75%, particularly when it seems to be peacekeeping forces that are being cut back? Mm. Okay. There, there are several of you down here who want to ask questions that, that I've recorded for the next round. So we could ask you to be quite short in your responses, because yeah, okay. I'd like to get another set. Fair enough. Um, guaranteeing elected governments um, doesn't address all the problems. And you, you give the example of Iraq, and you give the example of Mugabe. Um, and you're obviously right. I, first of all, I would say Iraq was so peculiar that um, it's not a good guide to to the future. Um, it's uh, you know it's a scar, um, but um, uh, you know, talk about fighting the last war, as it were. There are a lot of Iraq wasn't part of the bottom billion. I mean, we turned it into part of the bottom billion, but it, but it, it wasn't part of the bottom billion. Um, it, was a, it, was, it was just, so we learned very little from Iraq. Mugabe, no, sure, there, there are situations that, uh, that, that what I propose will not, will not address. 
um, there's such a category in policy as too difficult. Right? That's not an excuse uh, for doing what we can where we can. Um, the, uh, the question about if militaries are so weak um, they won't be providing credible threats for coups. Um, presidents weaken their armies because they're so scared of them. And even though they weaken them, uh, there are a lot of successful coups. Remember, four successful coups in the last year, despite the fact that presidents have done everything possible to defend from them. So this, the coup is very much a credible threat. Um, uh, Gaddafi, um, I'm told that one of uh, Gaddafi's uh, refrains to individual leaders has been, uh, why are you so silly as to bother with elections at all? Why hold them? Um, so uh, there's um, uh, sort of his sol his solution is uh, is is pretty uh, frightful. But um, I don't think this United States of Africa thing is going to go anywhere. Really, it's a, um, it's part of this. Th there's a long history of kind of gesture politics around these areas. Presidents like it because it sounds portentous. Um, but then um, a think what a united Africa would actually mean. It would mean presidents giving up sovereignty. Um, I bet Gaddafi has a proposal as to whom they should give up sovereignty to. Um, but that might not be welcome to the other presidents. Um, finally, um, do we lodge this with the United Nations? Um, we can't. Um, very simple reason, China. Yeah? Uh, China's not going to police the, the good conduct of elections. I mean, <laughs> um, face it, right? Um, uh, we, we already have monitoring to see whether elections are free and fair. Um, and the European Union routinely monitors to see whether they're free and fair. The, the European Union has something I think called a rapid reaction force for, for sort of military intervention in Africa, which will never react. You know, it's one of these wonderful euphemisms. It'll never react at all, whether rapidly or slowly. Um, but, but if we try to link its monitoring of elections to um, its, uh, its, its military capacity, then, then we might give it some role. Um, above, all, above all, I come back to Obama, that um, Obama's got the instrument. He's got AFRICOM, a military force for Africa, dedicated for Africa. He's got the legitimacy. Um, if, 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 Mugabe, if, if, if Obama ran against Mugabe, <laughs> who do you think would win <laughs> in a clean election? <laughs> Okay, we have, I think, time for just, unfortunately, just probably one more round, but we'll try and squeeze perhaps a few more than three in. Yes, we could be brief. Thank you. I have a question on the provision of security for the citizens of the bottom billion. Um, there's been some suggestions in the literature that given the lack of local military power and also given the seemingly reluctance on the part of the UN, the international community, to provide security, can international private security companies be a solution to this. I just want your comments right. on right. the growth of this yeah. industry. If you could pass the mic back, then the next person in, the, in this long queue is sitting in the corner over here. This lady in the corner. Thank you for a very excellent uh, lecture. Um, Michael, 
If I understand what you're proposing, it's that this, um, the global community would provide the public good of security to back up uh, these states that are structurally unable to provide that for themselves. But my concern is that would there be unintended, unintended consequences within um, the developed countries in terms of um, diplomacy, development aid, and so on being subordinated then to military solutions and how to sort of maintain the balance of power within the developed countries, um, making sure that we don't end up completely uh, militarizing uh, development. Brief lady in front row, still writing your question? Yeah. Or, oh, you, go on, you too. Um, one of the points that you made was that uh, coups should be uh, put down by external militaries. And I wonder whether uh, presidents would really fear or really be um, made to feel better about that if what they're being told is, we will come into your country after you're dead and put your vice president into power. Um, is that something that a president would really find uh, to be powerful enough? Oh. Paul, we'll just take a couple more, Paul. All right, and you could give you an opportunity to sure. close. Sure. Um, I just want to reiterate what uh, Stacy down there said just uh, before that. I think the problem is really if we don't go through the United Nations Security Council, then there are so many big international politics, international political economy problems uh, that actually brings us back into the whole uh, problem we had in Africa in, uh, during the Cold War, doesn't it? Okay, then the guy behind you in the green top. I'm sorry, everybody, we're going to run out. On, on putting down coups... I'm skeptical about the practicality and the political will of both the United States and the EU Rapid Deployment Forces. Can you speak to how quickly that might occur, assuming a judgment could be made in a month about what's likely to be a gray area about the legitimacy of an election? Then when would these uh, rapid reaction forces come in? Do you really see the political sustained will of the United States or the EU to give the blank check for these to occur, okay. I Thanks. would be enormously okay. skeptical. Great. Great. And the guy at the back on this row, just I'm desperately trying to get one or two more of you in, but I'm afraid this is probably going to be it. Um, referring to the last model you spoke about in coup d'etat, um, don't you think this, would, this approach would grant excessive powers to the militaries of these countries, um, as they may hold incoming governments uh, hostage to what they want them to do? Okay, Paul, before you yeah. just wrap up, let me just toss in a final thought for you. The three, <laughs> the three recommendations you made are independent of your argument, really, that size matters. Your argument is that size does matter, but post-conflict peacekeeping, linked aid, military intervention to support a democratic government do not address the question, the fundamental question of sizes, which is where you started. So I wonder how you square those recommendations with the problem of size in your argument. And finally, these three recommendations seem to be somewhat stripped, as has been suggested earlier, of the geopolitical context, because clearly in Africa now, China is becoming a more dominant power. It's likely after the credit crunch global financial crisis to be in a stronger position, not a weaker position, in the years ahead. And many of these recommendations are unlikely, it seems to me, to win the support of the, the big geopolitical rivals in Africa today, and I wonder what you'd say about that in closing. Thanks. Hmm. Um, 
Okay, so I'll go quickly. Uh, private sector security forces, no. Um, they're not a solution. Uh, they're much more likely to be part of the problem. Um, and the, uh, the reason for that is, is the reason why uh, everywhere uh, security has to be a publicly provided good. Um, it's just too dangerous to give private interests that role. Um, there's, a, there's a good little book by uh, Avanash Dixit called The Economics of Lawlessness, where he discusses this from a sort of, from 30,000 foot economic theory level, but he comes to that conclusion. Private security, no. Um, uh, unintended consequences um, uh, of uh, sort of opening this particular can. Um, yes, but, um, see, I think the, um, and let me link this to the geopolitical developments. And, you, know, you, you pointed China, but actually, um, some of the geopolitical developments are much more benign than that. Um, uh, it's no longer a world in which all the solutions for the problems of the bottom billion have to come from the top billion. Um, a lot of the societies of that four billion uh, can now be part of the solution, uh, and they're not uh, autocracies. China is, but most of the others are not. Brazil, democracy. India, democracy. Powerful democracies um, with uh, an aspiration to play on the world stage as forces for good. I've just been working the last few months on Haiti, um, trying to come up with a, a development strategy for, for Haiti. Um, and um, what, Haiti is a classic country of the bottom billion with gross internal security problems. And what's been keeping the peace for the last five years is 9,000 Brazilian troops. Brazil stepped up to the plate, provided security. Is it, a bit of, is it trying to get a colonial empire? Of course not. It's trying to be a responsible citizen. Uh, and it's succeeding. And so drawing in the, the new ambitious democracies um, is, is, uh, is the counter, as it were, to saying uh, China's uh, got its own. China has got a different agenda. Uh, China is not utterly opposed um, to, to security and accountability. Far from it, actually, because China has no interest in disorder. Very much not. So, as it were, if the price of security is accountability, China probably won't block it. Um, uh, if you ask it to celebrate accountability, then perhaps not. Um, um, uh, the, um, there's a very witty point that um, uh, African presidents or any other presidents might not uh, take the offer of um, uh, we will intervene to install your vice president and give you a good funeral. Um, I, I, that's, a, that's, that's a nice point. But of course, um, uh, I think the answer is it, it doesn't get to that. It doesn't get to that. What, we don't, we, we won't, we won't if, if this comes into force, we won't observe a lot of uh, intervention to put coups down. The coups just won't happen in democratic countries because the consequences for the military will be just too dangerous. And so we never get to dead presidents uh, being given fine funerals. Um, we, we, don't, we, we discourage the coups, I think.
and I think president, presidents are very shrewd people. That's why they're presidents in these environments, and they recognize that. Um, would the um, uh, US and the European Union be willing to entertain this? Um, I don't know, but the think what the, what, the, what the discourse is coming out of the new administration in the United States. Um, it's the language of, of smart power. This is Hillary Clinton's um, approach, right? Smart power. Now, what does smart power mean? It means, um, it means that we're going to have a very small amount of military power allied to a lot, a lot of soft power. But, it's, but smart power is saying we need to, to sort of gear up little bits of military power with a lot of intelligent use of soft power. Now, of course, what we had with the previous administration was a, an absurd over-reliance on hard power and no soft power at all. Um, and then in the administration before that of her husband um, we had uh, soft power with no hard power remember the Rwanda right? Rwanda happened because of the utter failure of the international community to use a minimal amount of hard power um, and so I think smart power sounds to me to be something really rather I mean, what I'm suggesting seems to me to be an example of smart power um, would this grant excess power to domestic militaries? That's a very good question. In other words, if the militaries are going to be the policemen for ensuring that um, presidents stay on track, don't, don't resort to illicit tactics, does that make them too powerful? And here I think the international community would need to... It's not a difficult point, I think. The international community needs to come up with, some, again, some clear rules here, saying that um, in the event of a coup that um, replaced a, that put down a president who just cheated, the coup would be given a window of a few months um, for proper elections to be held, and the coup leaders could not be candidates. And if that wasn't adhered to, the international community would come and put down that coup. Uh, so there has to be ground rules that limit. We, we, no way do we want to get back to military rule in Africa or anywhere else. Um, but I think it's probably, as long as we have some clear rules, um, that, that problem can be, can be limited. Um, your final uh, point of the chairman was a lot of the argument that I advanced was size matters, but the solutions seemed not to involve size. But the, the solutions actually do involve size, because remember, um, the uh, size is not just a matter of population, it's a matter of economic size. And the, the thesis is that we can't get rapid economic development until we have a temporary phase of providing security and accountability, but that once those things are provided, then these economies grow, and these, because of that economic growth, these societies grow out of the need for international supply. So it's, it's the argument that there's a temporary phase of international supply is needed to back these societies out of a cul-de-sac, which they have inadvertently been thrust into 
through no fault of their own. They got into this cul-de-sac because the process of decolonization created tiny entities um, and uh, these tiny entities were then stuffed with elections without institutions in the great wave of post-Soviet uh, euphoria. Uh, and so we need to help back these countries out of that cul-de-sac once they're on a trajectory to rapid growth within a decade or two they'd be out of the range where international supply was needed so it remains for me just to do say two things one is that Paul Collier will be signing books outside so you forgive us for leaving the lecture theatre first he will be in position when you get out there in case you want to buy one of his recent books and then of course it remains for me to thank him warmly uh, for his sustained contribution to thinking about Africa development and, uh, and poverty reduction over a long period of time, his lecture this evening. And not only do I want to thank him warmly on our behalf for all of that, it's also an important week for him. He's gained two small, two small ones. So I think we should also congratulate him as well. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you.